Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories and Anna Sewell's Black Beauty. Today, chapters 38 through 42. And now, chapter 38, Dolly and a Real Gentleman. Winter came in early, with a great deal of cold and wet. There was snow or sleet or rain almost every day for weeks, changing only for keen driving winds or sharp frosts. The horses all felt it very much. When it is a dry cold, a couple of good thick rugs will keep the warmth in us. But when it is soaking rain, they soon get wet through and are no good. Some of the drivers had a waterproof cover to throw over, which was a fine thing. But some of the men were so poor that they could not protect either themselves or their horses, and many of them suffered very much that winter. When we horses had worked half the day, we went to our dry stables and could rest. While they had to sit on their boxes, sometimes staying out as late as one or two o'clock in the morning if they had a party to wait for. When the streets were slippery with frost or snow, that was the worst of all for us horses. One mile of such traveling, with a weight to draw and no firm pudding, would take more out of us than four on a good road. Every nerve and muscle of our bodies is on the strain to keep our balance, and, added to this, the fear of falling is more exhausting than anything else. If the roads are very bad indeed, our shoes are roughed, but that makes us feel nervous at first. When the weather was very bad, many of the men would go and sit in the tavern close by and get someone to watch for them, but they often lost a fare in that way and could not, as Jerry said, be there without spending money. He never went to the rising sun. There was a coffee shop near where he now and then went, or he bought of an old man, "'who came to our rank with tins of hot coffee and pies. "'It was his opinion that spirits and beer made a man colder afterward, "'and that dry clothes, good food, cheerfulness, "'and a comfortable wife at home "'were the best things to keep a cabman warm. "'Polly always supplied him with something to eat "'when he could not get home, "'and sometimes he would see little Dolly "'peeping from the corner of the street "'to make sure if Father was on the stand. "'If she saw him, she would run off at full speed,' and soon come back with something in a tin or basket, some hot soup or pudding Polly had ready. It was wonderful how such a little thing could get safely across the street, often thronged with horses and carriages, but she was a brave little maid, and felt it quite an honor to bring Father's First Course, as he used to call it. She was a general favorite on the stand, and there was not a man who would not have seen her safely across the street if Jerry had not been able to do it. One cold, windy day, Dolly had brought Jerry a basin of something hot and was standing by him while he ate it. He had scarcely begun when a gentleman, walking toward us very fast, held up his umbrella. Jerry touched his hat and returned, gave the basin to Dolly, and was taking off my cloth when the gentleman, hastening up, cried out, No, no, finish your soup, my friend. I have not much time to spare, but I can wait till you have done, and set your little girl safe on the pavement. So saying, he seated himself in the cab. Jerry thanked him kindly and came back to Dolly. There, Dolly, that's a gentleman. That's a real gentleman. He has got time and thought for the comfort of a poor cabman and a little girl. Jerry finished his soup, set the child across, and then took his orders to drive to Clapham Rise. Several times after that, the same gentleman took our cab. I think he was very fond of dogs and horses. "'for whenever we took him to his own door, two or three dogs would come bounding out to meet him. "'Sometimes he came round and patted me, saying in his quiet, pleasant way, "'This horse has got a good master, and he deserves it. 
it was a very rare thing for anyone to notice the horse that had been working for him. I have known ladies to do it now and then, and this gentleman and one or two others have given me a pat and a kind word. But ninety-nine persons out of a hundred would as soon think of patting the steam engine that drew the train. The gentleman was not young, and there was a forward stoop in his shoulders as if he was always going at something. His lips were thin and close shut, though they had a very pleasant smile. His eye was keen, and there was something in his jaw and the motion of his head that made one think he was very determined in anything he set about. His voice was pleasant and kind. Any horse would trust that voice, though it was just as decided as everything else about him. One day he and another gentleman took our cab. They stopped at a local shop. They stopped at a shop in Ribald Street, and while his friend went in, he stood at the door. A little ahead of us on the other side of the street, a cart with two very fine horses was standing before some wine vaults. The carter was not with them, and I cannot tell how long they had been standing, but they seemed to think they had waited long enough and began to move off. Before they had gone many paces, the carter came running out and caught them. He seemed furious at their having moved, and with whip and rein punished them brutally, even beating them about the head. Our gentlemen saw it all, and stepping quickly across the street, said in a decided voice, "'If you don't stop that directly, I'll have you arrested for leaving your horses, and for brutal conduct.' The man, who had clearly been drinking, poured forth some abusive language, but he left off knocking the horses about, and taking the reins, got into his cart. Meantime, our friend had quietly taken a notebook from his pocket, and looking at the name and address painted on the cart, he wrote something down. "'What do you want with that?' growled the carter, as he cracked his whip and was moving on. A nod and a grim smile was the only answer he got. On returning to the cab, our friend was joined by his companion, who said laughingly, "'I should have thought, right, you had enough business of your own to look after, without troubling yourself about other people's horses and servants.' Our friend stood still for a moment, and throwing his head a little back, "'Do you know why this world is as bad as it is?' "'No,' said the other. "'Then I'll tell you. "'It is because people think only about their own business, "'and won't trouble themselves to stand up for the oppressed, "'nor bring the wrongdoer to light. "'I never see a wicked thing like this without doing what I can, "'and many a master has thanked me "'for letting him know how his horses have been used.' "'I wish there were more gentlemen like you, sir,' said Jerry, "'for they are wanted badly enough in this city.' "'After this we continued our journey.' and as they got out of the cab, our friend was saying, My doctrine is this, that if we see cruelty or wrong, that we have the power to stop and do nothing. We make ourselves sharers in the guilt. We'll return with chapter 39, right after these sponsor messages. And now chapter 39, C.D. Sam. I should say that for a cab horse I was very well off indeed. My driver was my owner, and it was his interest to treat me well and not overwork me, even had he not been so good a man as he was. But there were a great many horses which belonged to the large cab owners, who let them out to their drivers for so much money a day. As the horses did not belong to these men, the only thing they thought of was how to get their money out of them, first to pay the master, and then to provide for their own living and a dreadful time some of these horses had of it. Of course, I understood but little, 
but it was often talked over on the stand, and the governor, who was a kind-hearted man and fond of horses, would sometimes speak up if one came in very much jaded or ill-used. One day a shabby, miserable-looking driver, who went by the name of C.D. Sam, brought in his horse looking dreadfully beat, and the governor said, "'You and your horse look more fit for the police station than for this rank.' The man flung his tattered rug over the horse, turned full around upon the governor, and said in a voice that sounded almost desperate, "'If the police have any business with the matter, it ought to be with the masters who charge us so much, or with the fares that are fixed so low. If a man has to pay eighteen shillings a day for the use of a cab and two horses, as many of us have to do in the season, and must make that up before we earn a penny for ourselves, I say, tis more than hard work.' Nine shillings a day to get out of each horse before you begin to get your own living. You know that's true, and if the horses don't work, we starve, and I and my children have known what that is before now. I've six of them, and only one earns anything. I'm on the stand fourteen or sixteen hours a day, and I haven't had a Sunday these ten or twelve weeks. You know Skinner never gives a day if he can help it, and if I don't work hard, tell me who does. I want a warm coat and a Macintosh, but with so many to feed, how can a man get that? I had to pledge my clock a week ago to pay Skinner, and I shall never see it again. Some of the other drivers stood around nodding their heads and saying he was right. The man went on. You that have your own horses and cabs, or drive for good masters, have a chance of getting on and a chance of doing right. I haven't. "'We can't charge more than sixpence a mile after the first, "'within the four-mile radius. "'This very morning I had to go clear six miles "'and only took three shillings. "'I could not get a return fare "'and had to come all the way back. "'There's twelve miles for the horse "'and three shillings for me. "'After that I had a three-mile fare, "'and there were bags and boxes enough "'to have brought in a good many two-pences "'if they'd been put outside. "'But you know how people do.' All that could be piled up inside on the front seat were put in, and three heavy boxes went on the top. That was sixpence, and the fare, one and sixpence. Then I got a return for a shilling. Now that makes eighteen miles for the horse, and six shillings for me. There's three shillings still for that horse to earn, and nine shillings for the afternoon horse before I touch a penny. Of course, it's not always as bad as that, but you know it often is. "'and I say tis a mockery to tell a man "'that he must not overwork his horse. "'For when a beast is downright tired, "'there's nothing but the whip "'that will keep his legs a-going. "'You can't help yourself. "'You must put your wife and children before the horse. "'The masters must look to that. "'We can't. "'I don't ill-use my horse for the sake of it. "'None of you can say I do. "'There's wrong lays somewhere. "'Never a day's rest. "'Never a quiet hour with the wife and children.' "'I often feel like an old man, though I'm only forty-five. "'You know how quick some of the gentry are "'to suspect us of cheating and overcharging. "'Why, they stand with their purses in their hands, "'counting it over to a penny, "'and looking at us as if we were pickpockets. "'I wish some of them had got to sit on my box sixteen hours a day "'and get a living out of it, and eighteen shillings besides, "'and that in all weathers. "'They would not be so uncommon particular "'never to give us a sixpence over.' "'or to cram all the luggage inside. "'Of course, some of them tip us pretty handsome now and then, "'or else we couldn't live. "'But
but you can't depend upon that. The men who stood round much approved this speech, and one of them said, It is desperate hard, and if a man sometimes does what is wrong, it is no wonder, and if he gets a dram too much, who's to blow him up? Jerry had taken no part in this conversation, but I never saw his face look so sad before. The governor had stood with both his hands in his pockets. Now he took his handkerchief out of his hat and wiped his forehead. "'You've beaten me, Sam,' he said, "'for it's all true, "'and I won't cast it up to you any more about the police. "'It was the look in that horse's eye that came over me. "'It's hard times for men, "'and it's hard lines for the beast. "'And who's to mend it, I don't know. "'But anyway, you might tell the poor beast "'that you were sorry to take it out of him in that way. "'Sometimes a kind word is all we can give him, "'poor brutes, "'and tis wonderful what they do understand.' A few mornings after this talk, a new man came on the stand with Sam's cab. "'Hello,' said one. "'What's up with C.D. Sam?' "'He's ill in bed,' said the man. "'He was taken last night in the yard and could scarcely crawl home. "'His wife sent a boy this morning to say his father was in a high fever and couldn't get out. "'So I'm here instead.' The next morning the same man came again. "'How is Sam?' inquired the governor. "'He's gone.' "'said the man. "'What? Gone? "'You don't mean to say he's dead. "'Just snuffed out,' said the other. "'He died at four o'clock this morning. "'All yesterday he was raving, "'raving about Skinner and having no Sundays. "'I never had a Sunday's rest. "'Those were his last words.' "'No one spoke for a while, "'and then the governor said, "'I'll tell you what, mates, "'this is a warning for us.' CHAPTER 40. POOR GINGER One day, while our cab and many others were waiting outside one of the parks where music was playing, a shabby old cab drove up beside ours. The horse was an old worn-out chestnut with an ill-kept coat and bones that showed plainly through it. The knees knuckled over, and the poor legs were very unsteady. I had been eating some hay, and the wind rolled a little lock of it that way and the poor creature put out her long, thin neck and picked it up, and then turned and looked about for more. There was a hopeless look in that dull eye that I could not help noticing, and then, as I was thinking where I had seen that horse before, she looked full at me and said, "'Black Beauty, is that you?' It was Ginger, but how changed! The beautifully arched and glossy neck was now straight and lank and fallen in. The clean, straight legs and delicate fetlocks were swelled. The joints were grown out of shape with hard work. The face, that was once so full of spirit and life, was now full of suffering, and I could tell by the heaving of her sides and her frequent cough how bad her breath was. Our drivers were standing together a little way off, so I sidled up to her a step or two, that we might have a little quiet talk. It was a sad tale that she had to tell. After a twelve-months run off at Earlshall, she was considered to be fit for work again, and was sold to a gentleman. For a little while she got on very well, but after a longer gallop than usual the old strain returned, and after being rested and doctored she was again sold. In this way she changed hands several times, but always getting lower down. And so at last, said she, I was bought by a man who keeps a number of cabs and horses, and lets them out. 
"'You look well off, and I'm glad of it. "'But I could not tell you what my life has been. "'When they found out my weakness, "'they said I was not worth what they gave for me, "'and that I must go into one of the low cabs "'and just be used up. "'That's what they're doing, "'whipping and working with never one thought of what I suffer. "'They paid for me, and must get it out of me, they say. "'The man who hires me now "'pays a deal of money to the owner every day, "'and so he has to get it out of me, too.' "'and so it's all the week round and round "'with never a Sunday rest. "'I said, "'You used to stand up for yourself "'if you were ill-used.' "'Ah,' she said, "'I did once, but it's no use. "'Men are strongest, "'and if they are cruel and have no feeling, "'there is nothing we can do but just bear it. "'Bear it on and on to the end. "'I wish the end would come. "'I wish I was dead.' I have seen dead horses, and I am sure they do not suffer pain. I wish I may drop down dead at my work, and not be sent off to the knackers. I was very much troubled, and I put my nose up to hers, but I could say nothing to comfort her. I think she was pleased to see me, for she said, You are the only friend I ever had. Just then her driver came up, and with a tug at her mouth, backed her out of the line and drove off leaving me very sad indeed. A short time after this, a cart with a dead horse in it passed our cab stand. The head hung out of the cart tail, the lifeless tongue was slowly dropping with blood, and the sunken eyes. But I can't speak of them, the sight was too dreadful. It was a chestnut horse with a long, thin neck. I saw a white streak down the forehead. I believe it was Ginger. I hoped it was. "'for then her troubles would be over. "'Oh, if men were more merciful, "'they would shoot us before we came to such misery.'" Chapter 41 The Butcher I saw a great deal of trouble among the horses in London, and much of it might have been prevented by a little common sense. We horses do not mind hard work if we're treated reasonably, and I am sure there are many driven by quite poor men who live a happier life than I had when I used to go in the Countess's carriage with my silver-mounted harness and high feeding. It often went to my heart to see how the little ponies were used, straining along with heavy loads or staggering under heavy blows from some low, cruel boy. Once I saw a little gray pony with a thick mane and a pretty head, and so much like Merrylegs that if I had not been in harness I should have neighed to him. He was doing his best to pull a heavy cart, while a strong, rough boy was cutting him under the belly with his whip "'and chuckling cruelly at his little mouth. "'Could it be Merrylegs? "'It was just like him. "'But then Mr. Bloomfield was never to sell him, "'and I think he would not do it. "'But this might have been quite as good a little fellow, "'and had as happy a place when he was young. "'I often noticed the great speed "'at which butchers' horses were made to go, "'though I did not know why it was "'till one day when we had to wait some time "'in St. John's Wood.' There was a butcher's shop next door, and as we were standing a butcher's cart came dashing up at a great pace. The horse was hot and much exhausted. He hung his head down, while his heaving sides and trembling legs showed how hard he had been driven. The lad jumped out of the cart and was getting the basket when the master came out of the shop much displeased. After looking at the horse, he turned angrily to the lad. "'How many times shall I tell you not to drive in this way?' "'You ruined the last horse and broke his wind, "'and you're going to ruin this one in the same way. 
"'If you were not my own son, I would dismiss you on the spot. "'It is a disgrace to have a horse brought to the shop in a condition like that. "'You are liable to be taken up by the police for such driving. "'And if you are, you need not look to me for bail, "'for I have spoken to you till I am tired, "'and you need to look out for yourself.' "'During this speech the boy had stood by, sullen and dogged, "'but when his father ceased he broke out angrily. "'It wasn't his fault, and he wouldn't take the blame.' "'He was only going by orders all the time. "'You always say, now be quick, now look sharp. "'And when I go to the houses, "'one wants a leg of mutton for an early dinner, "'and I must be back with it in a quarter of an hour. "'Another cook has forgotten to order the beef. "'I must go and fetch it, and be back in no time, "'or the mistress will scold. "'And the housekeeper says they have company coming unexpectedly "'and must have some chops sent up directly. "'And the lady at number four in the Crescent "'never orders her dinner till the meat comes in for lunch, "'and it's nothing but hurry, 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 all the time. "'If the gentry would think of what they want "'and order their meat the day before, "'there need not be this blow-up.' "'I wish to goodness they would,' said the butcher. "'It would save me a wonderful deal of harass, "'and I could suit my customers much better if I knew beforehand. "'But there, what's the use of talking? "'Whoever thinks of a butcher's convenience?' "'or a butcher's horse. "'Now, then, take him in and look to him well. "'Mind, he does not go out again today, "'and if anything else is wanted, "'you must carry it yourself in the basket.' "'With that he went in, and the horse was led away. "'But all boys are not cruel. "'I have seen some as fond of their pony or donkey "'as if it had been a favorite dog, "'and the little creatures have worked away "'as cheerfully and willingly for their young drivers "'as I worked for Jerry.' It may be hard work sometimes, but a friend's hand and voice make it easy. There was a young coster boy who came up our street with greens and potatoes. He had an old pony, not very handsome, but the cheerfulest and pluckiest little thing I ever saw. And to see how fond those two were of each other was a treat. The pony followed his master like a dog, and when he got into his cart would trot off without a whip or a word, and rattle down the street as merrily as if he'd come out of the queen's stables. "'Jerry liked the boy and called him Prince Charlie, "'for he said he would make a king of drivers some day. "'There was an old man, too, "'who used to come up our street with a little coal cart. "'He wore a coal heaver's hat and looked rough and black. "'He and his old horse used to plod together along the street, "'like two good partners who understood each other. "'The horse would stop of his own accord at the doors "'where they took coal of him. "'He used to keep one ear bent toward his master.' The old man's cry could be heard up the street long before he came near. I never knew what he said, but the children called him Old Bay Arhoo, for it sounded like that. Polly took her coal of him and was very friendly, and Jerry said it was a comfort to think how happy an old horse might be in a poor place. Chapter 42 The Election As we came into the yard one afternoon, Polly came out. Jerry! "'I've had Mr. B. here asking about your vote, "'and he wants to hire your cab for the election. "'He will call for an answer.' "'Well, Polly, you may say that my cab will be otherwise engaged. "'I should not like to have it pasted over with their great bills. "'As to making Jack and Captain race about to the public houses "'to bring up half-drunken voters, "'why, I think it would be an insult to the horses. "'No, I shan't do it.' "'I suppose you'll vote for the gentleman?' "'He said he was your politics.' 
"'Yeah, and so he is in some things. "'But I shall not vote for him, Polly. "'Do you know what his trade is?' "'Yes.' "'Well, a man who gets rich by that trade "'may be all very well in some ways, "'but he is blind as to what working men want. "'I could not in my conscience send him up to make the laws. "'I dare say they'll be angry, "'but every man must do what he thinks to be the best for his country.' "'On the morning before the election, "'Jerry was putting me into the shafts "'when Dolly came into the yard sobbing and crying "'with her little blue frock and white pinafore "'splattered all over with mud.' "'Dolly, what's the matter?' "'Those naughty boys,' she sobbed, "'have thrown the dirt all over me. "'It called me a little ragga—ragga—' "'They called her a little blue ragamuffin, father,' "'said Harry, who ran in looking very angry. "'But I've given it to them, "'and they won't insult my sister again. "'I've given them a thrashing they'll remember, "'a set of cowardly, rascally, orange blaggards.' "'Jerry kissed the child and said, "'Run into mother, my pet.' "'and tell her I think you had better stay at home today and help her.' "'Then turning gravely to Harry, "'My boy, I hope you will always defend your sister "'and give anybody who insults her a good thrashing. "'That is as it should be. "'But mind, I won't have any election blackguarding on my premises. "'There are as many blue blackguards as there are orange, "'and as many white as there are purple, or any other color, "'and I won't have any of my family mixed up with it.' Even women and children are ready to quarrel for the sake of a color, and not one in ten of them knows what it's about. Why, father, I thought blue is for liberty. My boy, liberty does not come from colors. They only show party, and all the liberty you can get out of them is liberty to get drunk at other people's expense, liberty to ride to the pole in a dirty old cab, liberty to abuse anyone that does not wear your color, "'and to shout yourself hoarse at what you only half understand. "'That's your liberty.' "'Oh, father, you're joking.' "'No, Harry, I'm serious, "'and I'm ashamed to see how men go on who ought to know better. "'An election is a very serious thing, at least it ought to be, "'and every man ought to vote according to his conscience, "'and let his neighbor do the same.' "'Thanks for joining us for chapters 38 through 42 of Anna Sewell's Black Beauty. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a moment, please do send us a review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We appreciate that very much. We'll return next Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.